Jeffrey, Hi, good evening. Good evening. Good to see good you evening. guys. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure I've been here, yeah, and thanks for inviting me as well. Just before you came on, we were just um, we were just chatting. So I just said, I said, have you seen Jeffrey's CV? I said, have you seen the qualifications he's got and the experiences he's had? And James said his mother yeah. put him in his place of the day saying, you know, does it ever make you realise what you've done with your own life, James? <laughs> That's interesting, yeah. Well, I think learning is, is part of development, isn't it? And, and as teachers, we, we have to module learning as well, isn't it? We, we have to yeah. do all things, yeah. You yeah. and Nadi Hakeem are making me look like my mum's least favourite son, and she's only got one. So, you know. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Season three, episode one of More Than a Job podcast. My name is Mike Bradford. Hi, Jay Woolerton. And my name is Daniel Bull. Listen clear now, baby. Yeah, yeah, cause it begins like. And on More Than a Job podcast in association with Research Head starts with season three, which is going to be an exciting season, which we've got planned. More interviews, more Research Head events, and more discussion and debate. We have the pleasure to be joined in our season three opener by Dr. Geoffrey Quay, PhD. Geoffrey is the National Director of Education and Standards for the Aspiration and Academies Trust, a lead inspector for Ofsted, an external expert for Ofqual, a fellow of the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, a DfE expert education advisor, examiner of maths for Pearson, and former head teacher of the City of London Academy. This after a first class degree in engineering, a PGCE and master's degree from the University of Hertfordshire, a PhD from Brunel, an executive certificate from Cambridge, and a certificate in school management and leadership from Harvard. Jeffrey, welcome to the podcast. Wow, what an absolutely brilliant CV. Lovely to have you on the first episode. Well, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to join you guys on, on this podcast. I'm a fan of, of, of your podcast and I, I like the style and the content. So, uh, pleasure to be here this evening. Well, we always have to have a brilliant guest on each season opener. So we, we're so delighted that you've agreed to come on. Can you tell us a little bit about your life growing up in Ghana and your own experience of education in your school years? OK, well, uh, that's that's an interesting question. Um, I think growing up um, from right from the onset, I mean, my parents um, um, saw the value in education. And my mum is a teacher, um, by the way. So. I thought they, they, they knew the value of education and um, I received good support at a very young age. Um, they instilled in me very good values. So, you know, it's the values of hard work, respect and, and compassion. So I think growing up, the value of education was something that I, I didn't really have to do a lot to see the purpose of being asked to go to school or engage, engage with my learning. I was a bit fortunate to have a private education at the beginning, which then helped with having you know good foundation in, in, in starting my education journey. Um, I do recall, in terms of structure of, of my you know kind of day and upbringing at the beginning, um, I mean being in school Monday to Friday, I'll also be at church on Sundays, you know, do some Bible studies. So I, I was um, obviously 
being engaged in more than just the uh, academic field in terms of learning the subjects, but I spent some of the weekend, um, and which was um, really great for me. So I felt at very early age, um, right in primary, I was very curious. I asked lots of questions, you know, and sometimes I have to put my hand up and I don't get called sometimes because I, I'm quite keen to ask lots of questions. But I, I did I did develop good interest in mathematics among other subjects. And I think um, my, my passion for maths grew from there. And, you know, surprise, surprise, uh, maths teacher later on. So I, I can see some link there, yeah. What was it that made you want to become a maths teacher or just generally go into teaching? Oh, yeah, I think with teaching, I think, as I said, my, my mum was a teacher. But, and so I, I can see how she enjoyed and loved her work. But that didn't really ignite any interest in teaching for me, you know. But I think during my, my first degree, um, I had the opportunity to, you know, support some of my course mates or classmates um, with some of the courses on power systems, engineering, maths, telecommunication. So I felt I was able to convey meaning probably with much clarity and the feedback I had was quite satisfying. So I knew I was doing something good. You know, of course, during the lecture theater, you know, the, the numbers in the lecture theater is mostly quite large, isn't it? So on those tutorials, I was offering some support and, and that sort of ignited that interest. And I think the rest is history. You know, of course, um, teaching is, it's not for the lighthearted, isn't it? <laughs> so you have to be ready for it, yeah. But I, I've enjoyed um, my journey so far, yeah. For those, for those people who don't know, can you tell us when that crossover happened between Ghanaian education and British education? And what was the stark contrast that you found in that? Well, I think, I think the crossover, I mean, if you, you probably look back, um, you know, Ghana is obviously... Um, a British colony. So I think uh, most of the education system it models on, on the British system, you know. Of course, I, th I think the British system, the, the learning is slightly more advanced in terms of um, newer um, practices and concepts. Um, but but the, the learning itself, I, I didn't think that there's a big contrast in, in terms of expectations. I mean, what, what the difference might be is that um, the quality of education probably in Ghana lag slightly behind and depending on, on, on the setting you find yourself. Um, expectations wise, the British system have high expectations, but again, my, my, my experience is that it, it varies depending on you know, where you find yourself as well. But overall, there's a lot of similarities um, because the British um, model education you know, in those era of, um, you know, being a territory, isn't it? Um, Ghana was a, a British colony, so expectations that the British had of education was transferred. And I think some of that still prevails in, in terms of how Ghanaian education system, they look to the British as a model, you know? Um, yeah, so I, I, I know you're looking for some contracts, but I think it, it's quite difficult to draw that distinction because um, a lot of the expectations is premised on um, certain level of quality and, and, and generally rest a lot on exams performance, which is similar to what you have in the British system. So um, there's a lot of requirements on passing exams and assessments. Yeah. Jeffrey, do you still have family who live in Ghana? Yes, I have family living both in the UK and Ghana, yeah, so. And, and I presume you, uh, whenever you get a chance to go back to Ghana, you must be hailed as an absolute success story I would imagine and an inspiration to to many of the people in the villages towns and cities 
that you visit in Ghana? Yes, well, I, I wouldn't say I'll be here last, um, you know, this uh, big success story. I, th- I think, you know, obviously uh, Ghana has different kind of demographics in terms of regions and um, ethnic um, sort of origins. I mean, obviously I, I come from the city, so I don't go to many villages, but I, I would think that um, those that I've engaged with, um, I'm able to inspire some people with, with my expertise and knowledge. But yeah, maybe I, I think if I did more travel to Ghana often, then what you said, Dan, will be hopefully true. But because I do less of travel, then I, I think maybe I'm not selling myself more in that sense. Yeah. And you are the National Director of Education Standards for the Aspirations and Academies Trust. So maybe that's one of the reasons you don't do too much travel, because you're so busy in this in this role that you're undertaking. Can you give us a little bit of information about your day to day role and, and what it entails? Yes, Michael, I, I think, you know, the, the role of being a national director um, is quite a demanding role. And partly because also our schools are not all in the same region. So we have um, four geographical areas. So schools located in, in London, the southwest, the south coast and in um, the south central, which is mostly in the Oxfordshire region. So it, it requires, um, you know, visiting different um, areas to, to work with principals. So my, my role involves supporting principals in um, executing the, the vision of the trusts, you know, and the expectations within that is to provide young people with high quality education. So in a day-to-day sense, monitoring what goes on within schools, holding principals to account, coaching, supporting, and providing direction for, for principals, but also working with middle leaders when required, you know, to be able to provide um, specific supports if, if necessary. So um, every day I'm in a classroom, like today, as I said, this morning, I've been in a classroom and monitoring an aspect of a disadvantage strategy within a school. So it's multi, you know, kind of faceted and, and it has um, different dimensions to it. But central to that standards and outcomes, you know, as well. So um, standards in terms of the day-to-day, but also offset expectations, um, DFE requirements. And then generally, I know we don't have exams currently going on, but again, that, that's a very important feature of my work that pupils achieve, you know, strong outcomes for progression and future um, opportunities, yeah. Do you sometimes uh, miss the classroom? Do you sometimes miss just the basics of uh, of just going into a classroom and being the classroom teacher yeah. now that you're you're obviously working across the trust? Yes, I, I do. I do miss teaching, but I take every opportunity I get to, you know, support. So sometimes in in a, in a maths lesson, which which is my my specialism, I I always want to support pupils and and have some impact. Um, I've taken a couple of um, intervention classes in the past. I mean, not not recent, but I feel anytime I get a chance, I, I utilize it, um, which, which is really great. It's refreshing to be part of learning, and and sometimes you, you're able to make better impact um, directly with the people. Sometimes you have a, a wider impact through leadership, and I, I do miss the classroom, but but I'm, I'm privileged to be going in regularly, so it helps as well. Yeah. Are you sure you're not just that excited kid at the front of the room with your hand up again? (laughs) Well, I'm always looking for ways that I could just, um, you know, chip in my view or answer a question. And there's always a temptation 
to say what you think first, but you have to sometimes you know, hold back a bit if you can. Yeah, that's... Well, moving on to, to a, a really big and juicy topic now, uh, Jeffrey. Much has been yeah. stated and talked about the gap widening between those who are disadvantaged and those who are considered as not disadvantaged, um, especially but it's been exacerbated, highlighted, magnified by the COVID pandemic. Do you think this is a gap that can ever be closed or are we just going to be raising the outcomes of all at a, a fairly linear rate? What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's, that's a loaded question. Yeah, so look, I, I think, you know, the, the issue with um, disadvantage attainment lagging behind that of um, of their peers or the, or the more fortunate or um, well-off peers. Um, Pre-COVID, um, if, if, if we just look at the balance sheets, pre-COVID, we had um, at GCSEs grade four plus, disadvantage um, is what, just about 36%, grade four plus, um, uh, you know, with in, in English and maths, and the non-disadvantage was 66%. So there was a big gap um, pre-COVID. Now, let, let's look at what COVID has really created. And I think the gap has widened. So let, let's take a measure, for instance, on five plus, um, which is the, the kind of good standards of, of, of um, pass, which pupils need to achieve. And if you take five plus in English and maths, where we have teacher assessments, remember here, there's no exam. So this is teacher assessment. Well, disadvantage is you know, just about, what, 31% there about, if, if my figures are right. And, and the non-disadvantage is about 59%. So the gap, which was previously just about, I think it's about 25% previously has become 27%. So the gap is widening, but I, I think there's a much you know, bigger issue with this issue of, or, or the subject of um, disadvantage attainment, because it starts at very, early age of education. So for instance, in reception, we have a, a gap at the start of reception of about four months um, gap. You know, so that, that's the variance in terms of before they set up in school. By the end of primary, that is about nine months gap between disadvantage and none. So coming back to the question of, you know, will that gap ever close or will go at a linear rate? The way I, I think I'll try and answer that question is, I don't know if you've looked at the paper from the Education Policy Institute in 2018. And that talks about education in England. And that was the title of the paper. And I, I think they did forecast it will take about 100 years to close that gap. Now, I don't think I'll be that much pessimistic about it. So what I'll say is that closing the disadvantage gap, some schools are doing fantastic work with that. Uh, even within aspirations, we have, uh, I'll give you a couple of examples of schools that disadvantage do better than none, or at least match their peers. So for instance, um, in, our, in our trust, we have a school, Magna Academy. Probably you've heard about that in, in, in Poole. We have other schools like Atlantic Academy in, in Portland, and they do exceptionally well with disadvantage. Here, here in London, you know, we have schools in the primary sector like Oriel Academy, you know, where disadvantage achieves significant outcomes. You know, so we, we do have schools at local levels making very strong impact on pupils outcome and i don't think that it will take 100 years so in, in the cases i've just cited disadvantage already doing better but the national aggregate um disadvantage still lag behind and, and why is that the case 
So I think that there is some social reproduction issues in some cases. And I feel that schools are using a pupil premium you know, well to try and address this. But there's a wider question about attendance. So if, if you think about COVID times, disadvantage attendance is 77% nationally. So what does that suggest? It means that a lot of disadvantaged peoples are losing out on the learning in school. Uh, and one reason or the other, it could be COVID related matters or just engagement in school not being that great. So I, I, I think the gap can be closed, you know, if I want to answer that question straight on, I think the gap can be closed, but it's just going to need strong leadership, you know. Um, when I was at City of London Academy, um, it was in a parliamentary review as one of the examples of best practice, disadvantage exceed disadvantage people. But that, that needs some relentless work in terms of raising expectations, aspirations, and engagement. And in aspiration, one of the things we'd be very keen on is having a curriculum that engages people. Because if people are not in school, then it doesn't matter how qualified you have with your staff body or how knowledgeable they are, people wouldn't really learn. And I think we, we do have um, a challenge nationally to try and engage more disadvantaged peoples that historically haven't really valued their time in school. So that, you know, the question about the gap, we can't have the gap being linear because otherwise the gap will become a permanent gap. So we need disadvantage accelerating at a much faster rate. And they are able as they appears. I think what is lacking is probably support from home and in some cases, expectations, yeah. Yeah, but you said obviously, you know, we, we can't keep it as a permanent gap, totally and utterly agree. But the gap, it just isn't closing, isn't it? I just wondered if you could, if you had any understanding as to why, you know, we're, we're throwing a lot of money at it with pupil yeah. premium funding. We have yeah. got so much focus in schools. We've got positive discrimination for those who are disadvantaged, but it's not having the impact that, well, not in all cases that we hope it would have, especially nationally. You know, why are these strategies perhaps not having such such dramatic impact? And what strategies would you recommend yourself if you could make decisions? Yes. Yeah, so I think, look, it's quite a challenging topic, isn't it? With, with the, because everybody has a view on education and even pupils from disadvantaged background, the parents have a view of education. They would have encountered education in a way that means they don't value the education or don't see what is being offered as suitable for their children. So I think one, one of the key ways that we can all tackle that gap is having this high expectations for all. And what I mean, truly high expectation, it needs to permeate every aspect of school life, you know? Because if you, if you give allowances for disadvantage saying, okay, because they don't have support at home, they, they wouldn't achieve those higher grades, then we are obviously accepting um, almost a deterministic view of, okay, well, this, this group of people don't have parental support or sort of what, what the middle class, you know, parents would bring to the table. But I think one of the issues is that we need to tackle at a very young age. So if you take something like literacy or reading, I mean, developing love for reading, you can't do that when you are probably age 11, that's too late. So you got to start at a very young age where pupils encounter books in a wide range of text. You want pupils to see that learning is quite an iterative process. They might make mistakes, but it's quite okay to make mistakes, you know, because all of us make mistakes daily. And I think in schools as well, aspiration, some of these young people don't have role models, you know. So if you say to them, oh, you're going to become a doctor, probably they haven't encountered 
someone like them that had become a doctor and they think maybe it's, it's beyond them. So they conceive an idea which becomes more durable in their thinking. So if you think about it, okay, well, you can become, you know, a member of parliament. And let's say you have never encountered someone who's been to parliament from, from your background or, or experience. Then those sort of aspirations become very distant. And I think raising high or setting high aspirations, raising the bar for disadvantage. I think we need to invest more resources at a very young age. I, I think right from primary, that's where we, we can make the biggest difference. Also quality of um, teaching in schools have to be consistently high because you can't have high education or sorry, high quality education in primary. Then maybe when you get into secondary, you are in a kind of, kind of mixed quality of provision. That, that's clearly going to set you back. So we need all schools, regardless of faith, to have very strong quality of education being delivered. I think support for families could also be great if, if schools have more resources, because I think parental engagement is always going to be a key in trying to provide a school whole continuum, isn't it? Especially if, if you're a school refuser, how, how would you change that if your parents are not engaging with the school to enable you feel that the school is going to make a difference? Yeah. So you, you touched on it earlier and we talked about COVID-19 and obviously it's had a dramatic um, impact on the landscape of education. There's been a huge in, uh, uh, emphasis on, you know, the digital learning during two periods of lockdown that we had. Now, obviously, as we're starting to move out of this pandemic slowly, but we're starting to move out of it. How do you see the development of ed the educational landscape now? Do you still think digital has a place or do you think we need to move back towards where we're at? Well, no, no. I, I think we've made huge gains. Um, if, if anything, one of the benefits of COVID is we've kind of fast-paced ourselves into the use of technology. Now, what we saw the initial period of the lockdown where remote education, there was lack of um, access to devices. And, and even when schools and the DFE gave devices, we, we knew there was um, digital poverty. People didn't have data or maybe the Wi-Fi, which is strong to kind of do the study. So I think schools have made huge gains. So for instance, in aspirations, we've invested in lots of um, front, you know, kind of classroom resources. So people are using more technology in terms of assessing resources or even being able to um, join lessons remotely. So we have blended learning policies to enable pupils to still participate in learning regardless of any self-isolation or any kind of personal circumstance. I think schools need to embed the gains made through this digital um, sort of I'll say revolution in some way, because I mean, almost every school has invested in you know, significant amounts of money to, in trying to get people's access to learning remotely. And, and that is going to become very important, even if there's no COVID, making sure you know, access to these devices are maintained. Because these devices, if we don't invest in them, you know, three years shelf life of a laptop, you know, those, all those things will fade off. But I also think that we have to think about how we integrate um, high quality education and, and probably this sort of videos and podcasts or opportunities that people can learn from varied you know, platforms or resources. Because the traditional way is using books in the classrooms. And I think having, we saw with the Oak Academy um, videos and how people could tap into various segments of, 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 of 
lessons to aid you know people's learning being remote or, or on site so i think um it's a very important um development in education and we have to find a way to sustain that but that's going to need a lot of investment as well because i, I think schools are different places and if you assume that every school has got the resources to maintain you know every child with a laptop you know it, i don't think that's realistic so we, we need to find a way to to embed this and, and i think our aspiration is taking the lead in terms of how we've you know started our programs of investment on digital devices but is going to need government support as well, yeah. And Jeffrey, our aspirations sharing some of that good practice. So for people who are listening, who don't work for aspirations, is it possible that they can get in contact with yourself or your trust and, and try and try and take advantage of some of this, you know, this, this excellent work that you're doing to, to take some of your advice on board? Yes, yes. Uh, I think aspiration is obviously um, keen to share best practice. Uh, so we, we are very open to sharing some of our recent innovations, you know, not only use of technology, but we've had some curriculum innovations. Um, probably you've heard about the No Limits curriculum, which is groundbreaking way of trying to approach the delivery of, um, you know, subject disciplines without creating this fragmentations and, and, and seeing subjects in silos, you know. So we've done quite a lot of innovative things and, We'll be happy to share, you know, so I'm sure if you, if you circulate my contact or look up aspirations and get in touch, we'll, we'll be happy to, you know, share what we are doing um, in, in that light. Yeah. Jeffrey, you get to visit a lot of schools, particularly in the south of England, as you pointed out. One of the things we wanted to talk about tonight was this issue of cultural capital. You know, one of the debates that's been recently had is about whether the BBC should play the national anthem at the end of a, a day. Uh, whether the children in school should be learning the national anthem or should even sing the national anthem. You get to see a lot of schools within your academy trust. How do we promote cultural capital in schools and what, what are your schools doing to promote cultural capital? Okay, so thank you. So I, I think the, the BBC decision is obviously, BBC is an independent body, so um, sort of the way you, you put your question. I think they, they need to make a decision on whether to reinstate playing of the national anthem. So it's quite difficult for me to comment or direct how the BBC proceeds with it. I know historically they played the national anthem. Um, so that is something that is on, on you know, kind of national debate. And one way or the other, we will know if the BBC makes any change, we'll all be able to, to find out. Um, but in, in terms of us, because and, and, and I need to add quickly that I, I see no problems with um, pupils you know, learning about the, the national anthem in schools, you know, because clearly then they they have um, an idea and understand the heritage, you know, so. But uh, the, the, the wider question on cultural capital. So um, I, I did put out an opinion piece recently on cultural capital. So I just need to reference that quickly because I think my view is that um, schools already provide cultural capital. If you look at it in terms of the institutional element of cultural capitals, which is their credentials and qualifications. So all of us are trying to get people's GCSEs or A-levels or you know, whatever the equivalent. So that is a cultural capital and has some exchange value for whether you know, jobs which will lead to um, you know, economic capital, it can lead to some social capital. You know, so already that is there, but I think the, the kind of 
embodied element of social, um, sorry, cultural capital, which you, you probably alluded into in terms of experiences and the wider you know, kind of offer. Um, I think it's very important for schools to give that offer because that gives the high quality education. It's not limited to just academic subjects. And within aspirations, we all know the COVID-19 has uh, created some challenges. But what we've done, so an example is if people haven't had a chance to visit a museum, we've been able to contact these museums and they brought the artifacts into the classroom. So people have still not lost out. We've had some virtual tours of places of interest. We've, we've had um, artists that have joined schools, classrooms remotely to talk about their work, you know. So now that the um, COVID is probably um, on the decline, um, the aim is to, you know, provide that comprehensive, coherently, and you know, planned curriculum. So we expect pupils in every year group to have a very clear enrichment opportunity within subject, as well as um, a whole year group provision. And some of the obviously um, is linked to a curriculum need. Others are just about making sure they have wider experiences that maybe families wouldn't be able to provide in terms of individual context. So our curriculum plans within school requires all our schools to have a well-documented and detailed um, personal development offer. And we monitor that, you know, to make sure that it's not just documented, but every child in the school has an offer. And so, you know, if you did, let's say, optional trips, not everyone can afford, isn't it? So you have to design a curriculum that everyone gets a minimum entitlement, and then there will be the optional trips that some are based on affordability. But even a disadvantage, we always make sure if there's a trip, then we will contribute a proportion of, of the cost. So the, the mandatory um, sort of um, limitation doesn't become the reason why pupils can participate. So we're doing quite a lot, um, but I think cultural capital overall is an, you know, it's an important um, feature of our offer. And we don't limit it to just the experiences. We believe in, in, in having high quality education, which is evidenced by the qualifications as well. Jeff, this question might be a bit unfair because it's going to put you right on the spot, but could you give us maybe okay. three, four, five things that you think every single child should go and do or experience you know, for example, every child must visit a museum um, by the time they leave school for their own benefit. What, what would your three, four, five things be? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think, you know, historically, we've, we've had all this thing about highbrow cultural capital activities, and some might seem to have more kind of value than others. But I think visiting a museum is, is, is really important. You know, I mean, going to the theatre, you know, watching a live show, I mean, recently we had our year sevens all attending a pantomime, you know, so having that sort of experiences is great. I think also, you know, giving pupils a chance to experience live sports, you know, so I think a lot of us watch sports on TV, but probably what it looks like being, and maybe in the Emirates, you know, like Arsenal, you, you probably wouldn't really imagine unless you are there. I know you're not very happy with the Arsenal example, but I, I think having that sort of um, attending a sporting event, you know, I think also what is important is that getting opportunity to travel beyond your immediate environment gives you a different context to, to be able to experience. And I know, in, let's say in geography lessons, if your school is located somewhere in Oxfordshire, there, there might not be any immediate coastal town nest, 
But if you study geography, you might get a chance to visit a coastal town, which you might you might do some data collection. But I think every child needs to have those sort of experiences. And it's always difficult to try and make one activity more of value than others, because I think with cultural capital, there is some opportunity for people to choose. And immediately you insist on what constitutes a right cultural capital activity. It, it will start take the immediate, um, what I say, the agency to act from, from people, isn't it? Because schools need to choose what do we think all our pupils need to. I think walking in the woods is very, really, really therapeutic, isn't it? But let's say if you don't have a, a pet or a dog to really do a walk, it shouldn't stop you from having that experience, isn't it? But you need someone to plan and coordinate this. So your first time going to walk in the woods for, you know, God knows, maybe two, three miles, what would that look like? It will be scary, isn't it, if you haven't done it before, but, you know, having the experience is quite a good thing. So I feel there are some few things everyone can have an entitlement to, but we should allow schools to choose because they, 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 they know what would be best for their pupils. But I think um, cultural culture is great, yeah. And certainly, certainly going to watch Arsenal at the Emirates is not going to be a relaxing experience, is it? You never know, you never know which brand of Arsenal you're going to get, do you? And if... If well, I like, I like the way. Yeah, well, look, I think Arsenal, we're, we're having a really difficult time currently. But I mean, like with most things, um, will come good at the end, you know. So we, we just have to persevere, you know. We've got oh. some young lads, yeah. Jeffrey, you're a very intelligent man, and I don't know if you can answer this question. Why have Arsenal got such a bad discipline problem? They are constantly having players red carded. And it's, and it's not, you know, I'm not just taking the mick, but. I, from all my experience of the Premier League, Arsenal have always had a had an issue, haven't they? It's a, quite a bizarre trait they have as a, as a club. Well, I, I think the problem is it maybe it's, it's a style of play that you know coaches are trying to develop, and sometimes you get people that overcommit, you know, to some of the tackles, and and maybe they haven't been lucky at times as well, isn't it? Recently, we had we had a red card which. I think it wasn't intentional, but you know, those are the rules. And um, yeah, but we can do better. Well, what teams do you support then? What teams do you support? Well, James very I'm, obviously I'm, supports uh, Liverpool. I'm a, I'm a big Liverpool fan, yeah. Oh, Liverpool, I support, okay. I support Manchester United. Oh, gosh, you, you're not having a great time as well, isn't it? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> you're having a great time, yeah. I support Bradford City in League Two. We won at the weekend. We are uh, we're hoping to get promoted to League One, but it's not looking good. So yeah. there's hope for you all, really. When I say that, isn't there? You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, moving back to to things that are um, if perhaps even more serious than than the state of Manchester United or Arsenal Football Club at the moment. Jeffrey, I want to touch on on leadership and especially BAME leadership. You you were quoted as saying, and forgive me if if I'm not exactly correct here, but it's going to take about 130 years to have any meaningful BAME representation in headship is what you're referring to. I think it's currently at about 4% approximately. Now, I I imagine that this is probably something that you're very passionate about when you speak about it and think about it. How do we change this this underrepresentation, and why do you think you know there are? Sorry, forgive me. What are the underlying reasons for such a small percentage of 
of BAME representation in leadership? Well, thanks. Um, so yes, I'm very passionate about you know developing leadership regardless of background or, or race or gender. But I think you know you pointed out the right problem, which is um, the snail pace of improvement within the education sector for you know good representation. And I know BAME is now kind of a, an obsolete term because the people feel BAME is being used to mask in a bigger problem you know so i think the dfe data is now not looking at it in terms of bay but if, if you look at ethnic minorities generally that data you know the figure you cited and my quote is well within 10 years there's been a two percent increase so between obviously 2010 to 2020 um and that is really disappointing because within that period we've had quite a lot of improvement within the school sector where I mean, when you go into schools, you see a lot of middle leaders from, you know, different backgrounds, you know, and the proportion of white colleagues or white British colleagues, which is about 85%. But when you talk about leadership, that becomes 92 or 96% in sort of headship. So you could argue that there is this overrepresentation at headship of our white colleagues compared to you know, the ethnic minority colleagues in education. And the question is, why is that? You know, and so my, my assessment of the situation is um, there seems to be a culture in schools where either ethnic minorities, especially for senior leadership, don't get noticed or get overlooked, or in some cases, maybe not valued as good enough to take on the reign within that school. You know, so they, they kind of almost plateau. So they get into middle leadership, and maybe at best, you know, SLT with some role and be, can't get beyond that. And why, why is that creating a problem in society? Because we are not seeing for many children in schools, role models that leadership can come from, you know, all angles and from all backgrounds. And one of the issues is that appointing authorities in school is governors, right? So if you imagine the governing bodies in schools are not very diverse. So there is always, um, unintended consequence that they will appoint maybe leaders of similar background or their own experiences. So I, I think getting governing bodies to be diverse is one of the ways to address this. I think also there needs to be talent management within schools. So, I mean, everyone that has interest in leadership should receive support, coaching, training. I think leaders should merit their role. So I'm not talking about appointing people just because they are ethnic minorities or have um, a particular kind of feel to read that, okay, I want to have representation. So, well, let's get two ethnic minorities on SLT. So we've met our quota. That, that will defeat the point, isn't it? Because education, if you want to have the best leaders, but I think the best leaders in the schools, I mean, they have the right qualifications, but either sometimes don't have the confidence to put themselves forward, which I think that might be one of the reasons. And then also the culture is, that school leaders maybe try to develop doesn't always create that inclusive environment where it's okay to put yourself forward. You don't need to, you know, be in school for 20 years before you think you can be a leader, you know? So addressing this, I think we should have more support. And the government has done great with the MPQs, which are free for every school, right? So we should have more, you know, leaders, whether white, Asian, Black, all having the opportunities, if they choose to, to be supported to develop 
the traits, talent, skills to be able to lead a school. But agent action is required to make governing bodies diverse because irrespective of what you do, they will be appointing the head. And if, if you were ethnic minority, you apply 10, 15 times and always you've been told no, uh, you will give up, won't you? So it, it, you need an opportunity where a governing body sees beyond just their experiences and believe that leaders can come from all walks of life and backgrounds, yeah. I think that, that, that really helped, yeah. I think it was last season we interviewed Hannah Wilson, who's um, known as the ethical leader, and she was saying in terms of female senior leaders, in order for them to become senior leaders, they almost have to stop being what makes them a good female senior leader and fit into a model. Do you think that's true of ethnic minorities as well, that they've got to become something that they're not in order to do it, and therefore with some ethnic minorities, they're just not prepared to fall into that? one model fits all. Yeah, well, I, I, I can recognise the female experience that Anna talks about. Uh, I think, you know, with, with female colleagues, uh, maybe, I mean, in schools, what you tend to find in female colleagues, maybe some of them will want to keep their leadership roles and will go for maternity leave and, you know, and that shouldn't be a barrier to, you know, staying up the ladder because it shouldn't be about who has children and not. I think the issue of... Um, trying to disguise yourself and fit a module or wear some cloak which allows you to be recognized as a leader. It's quite a dangerous territory, isn't it? Because what you need is you need authentic leaders, isn't it? And we all have, um, I'll say, we all have strengths of, you know, different kinds that will help a school develop. Because if, if a school only can work with a particular type of leader, then that's a problem because I think our schools have a diverse intake in the, in, at least in the big cities. You will expect that you have all kinds of backgrounds within a school. And what is shocking is that sometimes you can have a school that is predominantly full of ethnic minorities and not even a single leader in the school on SLTs. I'm not suggesting you should do by numbers, but I think you can inspire even both white and black Asian children more if they encounter, you know, leaders of different backgrounds, isn't it? And I think probably some work to be done about creating a culture where everyone feels that they have an equal chance and will put themselves forward. Because sometimes I think it's a fear of being rejected, isn't it? That That is always going to be difficult for anyone, but people, people might have those thinking or ideas to hold themselves back yeah i agree i think there's such a fine balance because we don't want a quota system where people are given jobs just because of a background actually positions should be awarded based upon ability and uh, and talent but at the same time coming back to what you said about uh, our disadvantaged children not seeing role models like them now you know if the balance is we need to create more opportunities for people of ethnic minorities to be in leadership positions to perhaps role model and and, and inspire other people and show them it can be done but yeah. how do we do that without perhaps some positive discrimination or perhaps some manufacturing of of, of these situations in order to get that representation uh, it's not a question really it's just a, just a, a few thoughts that are coming out. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you 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 strike the right balance. You don't want to do it by quota, and 
and positive discrimination, but we still need to create role models in school. Because how are you going to create a pipeline of new leaders that will come from ethnic, um, you know, kind of backgrounds or ethnic minority background? It's by, you know, seeing whilst in school as a pupil, if you see some of your teachers um, doing the job they love and you can see that they are in position of authority, they have responsibility, you can see yourself there. And sometimes not seeing people that look like you or feel like you or have similar experiences. You could, you know, I, I use the term people self-select, isn't it? And even if you promise them the best job in teaching, they probably haven't encountered anybody like them that has been successful in teaching. And what we are talking here about is not that everybody wants to become a school leader. That is not the point, isn't it? Because there are many teachers who wouldn't want to become school leaders. But what we are saying is, if there are colleagues out there that have passion to develop and become school leaders, we should support them and facilitate that journey and create an environment where they can thrive like anyone else without going into that caveat of, okay, well, let's get two people from X group or start discriminating just based on race. That, that would be unhelpful, you know? So, so we need to create the right culture and make sure everybody feels that they are valued and can be supported to to develop leadership skills, yeah. So staying with the theme of leadership, obviously you are a lead Ofsted inspector. The schools have received Ofsted during the pandemic. We've spoken with a lot of our guests who are senior leaders in school, heads, who have a very mixed view on Ofsted and Ofsted inspection. You've probably heard some of the interviews. Do you still think then that the judgment model of Ofsted is fit for purpose? And is there's a voice out there for getting rid of the grading system and having a more positive and proactive system. What's your thoughts behind that? Okay, well, look, um, I, I think Ofsted has made significant improvement to, um, you know, the education landscape, you know. So if you look over many years, Ofsted has been in existence. I think as, as a regulator, Ofsted played a significant role in shaping discourse and supporting school improvement. And I think, you know, when we say Ofsted is a force for improvement, it's not a cliche because I think what they do provide tangible ways of driving school improvement. And of course, um, having grades allows for differentiating in terms of quality and providing parents choice. So if, if we take away the grades and say maybe schools that are in this category are, well, let's forget using the word good, say they are, what would you call them? They, they are school X or even if you pull labels on them that doesn't have description, people want to differentiate and say, okay, well, I live down the road. I have a choice of five schools. Where do I take my child? And by having grades that are transparent, you know, these Ofsted grades are, you know, things that are published nationally. People know what the criteria really looks like. I don't think parents read the Ofsted handbook to choose schools, but Ofsted report does communicate to parents, you know, and I feel that grades are fit for purpose. I, I would need to argue that because I think a recent education inspection framework, there was a consultation nationally and parents did respond to that as well as, you know, colleagues in the sector. So Ofsted is doing a fantastic job, I'll say. Um, clearly people have different experiences. Uh, you mentioned the recent interview you had, but I think Ofsted has come a long way. We, we've moved away and I'm not speaking for Ofsted as a body, but as a practitioner, I think schools have moved away from that fixation on data, you know, where it was driving certain behaviors. And now it's about, you know, data, yes, it's an element of quality of education, but it doesn't become the overriding goal. 
so people can focus on a broader education offer. You know, you remember primary schools, they just did English and maths, and a lot of times people were focusing on only the SATs. But, you know, Ofsted is supported schools to move away from safe behaviours. Um, I think within COVID, um, Ofsted had been very supportive of schools as well. I, I think, um, I mean, we've had one inspection in aspirations during this COVID time, and the experience from what I gather from the teachers and, and the head teacher of our school, it was really a positive experience, you know? So I think those that argue for Ofsted grades to be scrapped, I think maybe doing that from a misplaced position, I, I would say, because what would they replace it with? Do you have an idea what they would replace it with? No, Jeffrey, I was just laughing when you said if we were to get rid of the Ofsted grades, I just scribbled down on the paper, life without levels. We'll go through that whole drama again. Life without Basically, levels, yeah. what do we replace them with? Yeah, we'll, be, we'll still be debating yeah. it in 10 years' time, I'd imagine. I think so. And, and even, you know, I, I took part in the um, Royal Society of Art debate on, on you know, let's say GCSE grades. There was, there was another group calling for GCSEs to be scrapped because it's no more fit for purpose. And when you say, what will you replace it with? They have no idea. You know, so again, whatever they will propose is not tested, isn't it? And if Ofsted grades are very exacting on schools, that's good because it's saying schools need to raise standards, you know? And what we are talking about here, about 95% of schools are good or better, right? So it's not like we have a, a very failing system where, you know, we have 40% of schools being requires improvement. So we're talking numbers on the margins, right? And outstanding schools in the past have had no regular inspection. That has also changed to give more information for the public and, and, and parents. So uh, I think for now, um, high praise for Ofsted because I think they, they play an important role in, in the education landscape. <laughs>
Only three. Mock exams. Necessary for teaching and learning. Grammar schools. Divisive. Parents' evenings. Face-to-face -face is important. Isolation booths. Remove the isolation booths, yeah. Remove them. Ex exclusions. Last resort. Only use as a last resort, yeah. Silent corridors. Not my thing. I think people should learn to talk, you know. And last one, free schools. We need more free schools, yeah. More free schools. Wow, some interesting answers. I think uh, I think you've got at least a good on that section. Maybe even an outstanding. Oh, okay. Um, well, I don't know what your criteria is. Yeah, but hopefully I, I said some yeah. of the right answers, yeah. I absolutely loved the answer to the uh, the booklets one. Just didn't even get engaged, didn't even engage in the teaching and learning elements, just the environment, environmental impact. Stop cutting trees. Simple, done. Yeah, because I, I think, you know, you can't use them again after pupils writing them, isn't it? So the share volume of photocopies and reproducing all these materials. Hopefully with technology, as so well, people will start doing this digitally. So it stops this um, large volumes of trees um, being, being cut down, yeah. We're going to see Brilliant. if you're going to set a trend as well, because everybody in season two pretty much said about parents' evening, keep them online. Why didn't we think of this before? Start a season three, you come in with face-to-face. -face. So we'll see now if we're coming out of the pandemic, if this is what people think again. Yeah, well, I think the pandemic has is, is made us improvise, but I think we should go back to what works, isn't it? Making good relation with parents, engaging with them. I think you know, virtual things work, but sometimes it, it can be a little bit too remote and people go through the motions and not, not necessarily building that relationship that you need to educate young people, yeah. Well, you've answered our questions so well tonight and, and I'm sure our listeners will be uh, in awe of some of your answers as well as your CV, Jeffrey. Now, we've got the last few questions. These are our so-called fun questions. Okay, so once right. again, I'm going to get you started. A little bit less pressure. You're not under, don't worry, you're not under too much scrutiny here. Okay, so my first question to you, are you a tea man or a coffee man? Well, coffee, yeah, it's coffee, but, you know, don't take too many. Two a day is fine, yeah. Two a day. There yeah. you go. You heard it from Dr. Jeffrey Quay. Um, when we meet, when we get a chance to meet you in person, which hopefully we will at some point in the future, uh, crossing paths, what can we buy you from the bar? Well, let's have JD and Coke here. JD and Coke. Who's paying? Damn. Who's paying here? Yeah. Mike. Mike usually puts his hand in his pocket first in all fairness. Okay, well, yeah, I'll mark that. Yeah. Okay. Now, I might be pleasantly surprised by the answer to this question. So, if we were to delve into your music catalogue, what would be who would be your top artist on Spotify or other streaming platforms? Well, it's always difficult choosing this one, isn't it? But I think I, I have Spotify, and um, I think Drake. Drake is, is is the top artist, yeah. Okay, yeah, wasn't expecting that. Fair enough. Excellent. Yeah, I was expecting something classical or something completely out there, but no, Drake. Oh, sorry, sorry. I, I surprised you with that, that one. There. That's fine. Um, okay, so what two items would you take with you if you were shipwrecked on a desert island? Now, all your food and drink are taken care of. JD and Coke on tap. But what work. two luxury items would you take with you? Well, it, it, 
it can't aid my survival, right? So I'm just thinking, obviously I need my glasses because I might not see everywhere I'm going to. So that, that is allowed. So no, you, you can have those for free. Things. You don't have to have those as an item. You've got those. Okay, so I can have three things, right? Or two. What what do I need? Two. Okay. So I think I have my I have my glasses and and some books, you know, to while away time here. So yeah, I'll pick something a bit dense to read. Yeah. Drake's autobiography. <laughs> well, that, that's that's a suggestion, yeah. But <laughs> I'll, I'll get bored with that. I I need something a bit more stimulating, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's so cool, actually, Jeffrey, to say that oh, my favourite artist is Drake as well. You know, who, who says yeah, mathematicians? Oh, good. That's nice. That's nice. Well, who, yeah. yeah, who said mathematicians all have to be geeks, eh? Yeah, you don't have to, is it? You don't have to. And, and I think he, he's quite creative, isn't he? Drake is a very creative artist. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jeffrey, as, as we've already explored, you are an incredibly intelligent man, very well qualified, very well experienced and an absolute delightful chap as well. And in all of your life, could you give us some insight as to what the greatest piece of advice is that you've ever been given? Greatest piece of advice. I mean, what comes into mind? Um, I think once someone said to me that, you know, we, we all aspire to be leaders. The one thing that, sort of stuck with me is um, to whom more is given, more is required. And, and on top of that, I said, um, you need to appreciate how far you've come. So I think that that really is quite poignant because a lot of times people want more responsibility, but forget that then a lot will come from that in terms of being held to account or expectations from you, isn't it? And you have to be able to put yourself under those sort of um, requirements if you want to be in those positions. But within that, being human, we, we always have to appreciate how far we've come. Even if it's a very small step, you, you need to be very appreciative for recognizing that you would have still made some progress, you know. And finally, what's next for Dr. Jeffrey Quay? What does the future hold, sir? I think the future is looking very promising and bright. Um, in terms of work, I mean, as, as a trust, um, we, we're looking to expand uh, as a trust and um, grow the number of schools. So that, that is really an exciting phase in, in trying to have a wider reach and impact on, on pupils' education and life chances. Um, I think also, you know, we, we, we're creating some very new modules of um, staff development within our trust in terms of growth. So those sort of things will, will be really, really um, interesting to engage in, in in the next couple of years. So that, that is what I'm sort of looking forward to. So um, I'm sure you'll read about some of them and, and we'll be able to share. Yeah. Dr. Jeffrey Quay, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking to you for our first episode of the season. And, and of course, anyone working uh, or any, any school joining the Aspiration Academy Trust gets to work with you, of course, which has got it's to like, be, you know, Absolutely. It's really exciting. Yeah, I'm. Lo I'm looking forward to obviously any school that is looking to find a home and join a trust. Um, you know, we, we are looking to expand. I will be happy to engage, whether formally or informally, to provide um, expertise and support. You know, and, and remember the goal here is to improve life chances of young people, and and that is what our mission is here. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you already have. You know, you, you're such a 
inspirational person and I'm sure the students who have worked with you have, have found that as well and other teachers so we really appreciate your very valuable time tonight Dr Jeffrey Quay thank you for joining us on more than a job podcast thank you for having me this evening really appreciate it. thank you be Sinclair now baby yeah yeah cause your begins like